Struggling to keep track of your story and world? Archivos is for you! More intuitive than a wiki, more extensible than Scrivener, Archivos builds your story bible into your personal, always-on tactical display. Graphical relationship charting, continuity tools, this thing has it all with bonus options for fan engagement and real-time collaboration. Archivos. Story world management done right www.archivos.digital. That's www.archivos.digital. Welcome to The Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, author of nearly 30 books, more than 30 short stories, and numerous articles and scripts and essays, coming to you from up in the crow's nest with my spyglass on this daily voyage through the dicey waters of business, craft, learning, and art in the writing life. Welcome to The Questions, episode 995. Today we hear from Rose, who asks... Black character, white author. Scott Adams admits that he never had a black character in Dilbert because it would be impossible to make fun of them. I know you have addressed this topic several times in the past and recommended fortitude and perseverance. I'm not concerned with being canceled, I self-publish and do not need nor expect publishing income. I am concerned with the narrowing funnel of permitted creative expression. Background? I wrote a story that came from the muse of a black teenage protagonist. Two beta readers mentioned a middle-aged white person shouldn't be telling this story in the current politically correct climate. If I can only write what I know, I'll be stuck writing shitty memoirs of a life so boring that I became a writer to escape from it. I can easily change it to a white character and piss off the muse. I can have sensitivity readers make it culturally conforming. I hate that I even have to think about things like this. Hashtag white privilege? Ha! Yeah, I would hate that too, which is why I don't think about things like this. Here's the thing. The entire debate is premised around racial essentialism, and racial essentialism basically holds that your skin color, your genetic background... Or your culture. No, no, no. Your skin color or genetic background defines your range of possible empathy and experience. And it's not true. Culture is what does that. Hmm. And over the course of history, there's basically three kinds of cultures. There are insular cultures. There are xenophilic cultures i.e. the cultures that love other cultures and um, exoticize them even to the point of fetishization. And then there are the appropriative cultures. These are the cultures that um, have as one of their baseline assumptions a sort of human universalism that uh, means that anyone could theoretically cross into anyone else's bubble and do justice to it. Each of these cultures have core values that express something that's kind of true. You will never completely get into the head of someone who's not you. It's one of the limitations of being human. We're all prisoners in our own skulls. It's also true that you can develop a tremendous amount of sympathy, empathy, and understanding for people who aren't you. And in fact, as an outsider, you may be able to see things about the way that another person or another family or another social class or another culture functions that while, they, while members of that group may implicitly understand them, 
could not under, could not articulate them well enough to make them accessible to someone who is not of that group. And it's also true that the dilution of one's own culture can present an existential danger at least to a culture and a civilization. So all three of these basic kinds of cultures are organized around something that is true, that the other cultures tend to ignore. Insular cultures tend to be tribal, or they tend to be ghettoized, um, or they tend to be organized around exclusive religious groups who started out as ghettoized, such as, for example, New England Puritans. Xenophilic cultures tend to be imperialists. The Romans, the British, these were um, at the heights of their powers. The Japanese. The Japanese. These are cultures. Weirdly, both insular and xenophilic. Yes. These are cultures that go out and conquer and loot, and in the pro- and they don't just loot the material treasures of other cultures. They also pick up anything that fi- that they find interesting, and they'll often use them to create caricatures of the people from whom they pick them up. But they do wind up incorporating those aspects of those cultures. Often they're aesthetic rather than philosophical, but sometimes they're philosophical, um, incorporating them into their own, but in a distinctly British or Roman or Japanese fashion. Mm -hmm. The appropriative cultures are the melting pots. There are very few of these, and they don't tend to be long-term stable. The modern West is one of the few of these kinds of cultures that has lasted a long time at scale. The modern West, especially because of America, which is a country that is basically built out of people who were unable to conform to their nation of origin or their culture of origin. Mm -hmm. Because of that, America has always been a cultural melting pot filled with lots of warring factions, which are changing all the time. But there is no such thing as a black culture. There are a number of different black cultures in the U.S., and they bleed at the margins into, for example, an urban black culture has a lot in common with lower-class Appalachian white culture. They share common cultural roots. Middle-class black culture bleeds into waspy New England white culture because they share common cultural roots. That doesn't mean they're the same. It means there's a broad overlap. And that's true whether you're talking all across the U.S. with every culture group, whether you're talking about racial lines or class lines or however else, whatever the external markers of that cultural group are, there is bleed over to the neighboring groups. And it is because of that bleed over that someone in an appropriative culture can have a prayer of doing justice to a main character that is of a different culture, different subcultural group. Now, we live in a time when racial essentialism is the new flavor of Puritanism, and I'm not joking. It actually is a weird 
corruption of Calvinism, which was itself a weird corruption of Anglican, uh, well, not of, of actually German Christianity, but we get it through the Scots and the English nonconformists who came over in the early years of the English colonization of New England. Um, and the, the central dogma of this way of thinking is that a given group of people is the special and the elect, and the arbiters of truth and taste, not necessarily because they are the wealthiest or most powerful, though almost invariably they are, but because they are ordained by God with a particular access to truth that nobody else has. And in the current incarnation of this ideology, it's not the white upper class that has this access to truth. It's the people that the white upper class has started to guilt themselves for oppressing, except not they that oppressed them usually, it was their ancestors that oppressed them. Which is a long and fancy way of saying it's bullshit. Now, as someone who is not part of the power clique... I'm assuming that you're not part of the power clique of the uh, upper-class New Englanders, the Ivy League-educated, that, that cultural stratum. As someone who is not of that stratum, if you violate what their current holy dictates are, you're going to get pushback. Maybe nasty pushback. Who cares? F*** them. They're not your audience. I've watched these censorship wars my whole life. Once they run out of a particular group to fetishize, they pick a different one. It never has anything to do with the welfare of the oppressed people that they're championing or the great moral values that they're championing. It has to do with making themselves look righteous in front of each other. And a lot of people get caught up along the way because it's always built around some kind of minor truth that gets blown out of proportion. Blacks are historically oppressed in the U.S. They have been treated incredibly badly by laws and by the army and by Christian progressives. By the way, the progressives under Woodrow Wilson, the founder of the progressive movement in the United States, Woodrow Wilson resegregated the federal government after there was already significant black power in Congress and in the government. And he reinstituted segregation, and he is the reason that, the, that it took till the 1960s for the civil rights era to really get going. Mm -hmm. So I am not impressed by this kind of posturing, and so I won't kowtow to it. And I'm willing to risk cancellation for it because I don't think that some self-satisfied, privileged dipshit should get to tell me how to respect the humanity of my fellows and how to champion the humanity of my fellows and how to explore the common humanity that we have. That's a little stronger than I meant to put it, but <laughs> so in order to get a little bit of a different perspective, I hand you off to the woman who proudly trumpets, I am cultural appropriation, <laughs> because she has a complementary but slightly different perspective. For context here, I am half Japanese and half Caucasian, and I am a bit of a racial chameleon as far as um, how other people look at me. I, but between my face and my hair... <laughs> They can't figure out what I am. So basically everybody assumes I'm something other than what they are, unless they're Hispanic, in which case they just start speaking to me in Spanish because the Latino subgroup is so varied that they're just like, okay, you have 
dark curly hair and slightly Asian eyes, you must be one of us. And I'm like, no hablo, no hablo. (laughs) (laughs) When we first started dating, you said, I knew you were going to be a friend because you were one of the few people who didn't ask me, what are you within three minutes of meeting me? (laughs) Yeah. And I'm like, well, I'm from San Francisco, you know. We're all weird. So that's that's just background. Um, in any case, my background and and who I am and what I'm interested in is just so unique that I have never had the luxury of expecting that there would be characters on television that were like me in any way. When I was growing up, my family and friends kept trying to get me to really love Shirley Temple because it was like the only person that they could think of that had curly hair but wasn't black. <laughs> or Annie. When Annie hit it big in the 80s, the, the movie version of Annie, it was like... extra hilarious since we found out that you've got black ancestry too. <laughs> yeah, so minute that it's like, doesn't really matter except for the hair. Except for the hair. So... Because I've never had that luxury, I've never cared. I'm much more interested in whether um, a character resonates with me in what they're interested in, what they're struggling with, what matters to them, what values they have, what their trajectory in life is, what their goals are, and whether their character stays internally consistent throughout the book or series of books or film or television, whatever. I was like, does this character make sense? Can I relate to this character at all? Does what the character does make sense for what the character has established in the first 15 minutes? Or first chapter or whatever. That's what matters to me. So she's, Rose has people giving her shit about writing outside her lane and representation. I mean, these are two subjects on which you have very loud opinions. I'm going to just say, fuck that. Um... And I'm sorry, Dan has to bleep yet another word today. Uh, What the fuck are you talking about? (laughs) Write a character that's internally consistent and interesting. And if the muse that put this character in your head is a black muse, why not? Is the character interesting? That's all that matters. So what's a writer to do with a character like me? If someone wrote a character like me, the people that complain about these sorts of things would complain that I can't exist. I have friends that are the kind of people that they say don't exist in real life. I know a woman who is a really hot, blonde physics major and a mom Mm -hmm. and working a high-powered job. And she is a person who, until I met her, I thought was an impossibility in science fiction stories. I was like, now I believe Sam Carter exists. I've met her. (laughs) I'm friends with her. Mm -hmm. She's got a great kid. A lot of the best and most interesting characters are people that someone else is going to tell you you cannot write or does not exist or is not real. Because they break those those essential category barriers. All that really matters to writing good characterization, and and this is extremely reductionist, and and I'm sure Dan will have lots to say about it, but what really matters is that all your characters aren't avatars of you, Mm. and that all your characters aren't stereotyped reductions of whatever group that character represents. Which is what you would have to write if you followed these new rules. Yeah. Write real people. Real people are complicated and messy, and they don't fit into the boxes that 
they look like they fit into. And the best characters, the most interesting characters, are the ones that are kind of outsiders for some group that they're in. Mm -hmm. And there are writers who get away with writing very stereotypical characters, but here's how they do it. Stereotypes exist for a reason. They're a distillation, a, a heuristic simplification of a pattern of behavior that you see in a given culture or in a given group. And and this is why every AI that exists somehow becomes more racist than normal people? Yes. Because it is just the heuristics and the patterns without any humanity behind it. And writers who write very stereotypical characters, like, for example, say, Quentin Tarantino, mm -hmm. get away with it because they say, okay, yeah, well, the stereotype's there, let's deal with it, but let's make this person who's stereotypical a real person with complicated feelings, like Samuel Jackson's character in Pulp Fiction. Or Samuel Jackson's character in The Hateful Eight. It's the humanity of the character, the complication, that makes them real and individual. You write an individual, all that has to be true is that individual's experience. They do not have to be an avatar for their group. In fact, if they are an avatar for their group, I would argue that you're doing something wrong. Mm. Yeah, yeah, because nobody is actually a representation of whatever. I don't look like a Japanese person. Except when you're wearing a beanie. Except when... <laughs> <laughs> um, my hair confuses people. Um, Got that Ethiopian hair. Yeah. It, nobody is a perfect representation of what they are because they have brains and they have thoughts and they have weird interests and they're unique. And your characters should be unique as well. It matters that your audience identify enough with your character to go on the ride with them. Yeah. yeah. That's it. It doesn't matter that people who aren't your audience th identify with your character or think they fit their prejudices or anything else. Mm -hmm. Anytime someone says, a black person wouldn't do that, or a white person doesn't think that way, or... There's, God, when I was first writing, I got so many really nasty comments about women don't work this way for my female characters. And I'm sorry, but I knew women who worked that way. And the women mm -hmm. who worked that way were so, had so much fun reading characters that had the weird quirks that they had. That's actually something that, that gets forgotten in these uh, conversations mm. or, uh, about right. good representation and whatnot is... It's every group has their outsiders, and the outsiders in that group are, are never represented. Mm -hmm. The types of women that I am, like women that like hard science fiction and nerdery and more interested in robots than in rainbow-colored rainbow horses, <laughs> I'm definitely an 80s kid. Yeah. You can tell yeah. that from that example. Especially but, when we were growing up, those women were not common. No, but... and. and when you are in a small public school, you think you're the only one. And then you get to the internet and you found out, found out there were thousands that all thought that they were the only one. Mm -hmm. But yeah, for everything that is characteristic of, of a group, whatever group that is, whether those are rodeo clowns or black women or nerds, every group that exists, there's going to be someone who is slightly outside of that group but is still in that group. Mm -hmm. And they're more interesting than 
the people who decided that because they're liberals, they don't want to be rodeo clowns. <laughs> I don't uh, think I've ever known anyone who decided I'm not going to be a rodeo clown because I'm a liberal. <laughs> <laughs> but I love the image. <laughs> well, so much is politically tribal right now. Oh, but, God, you know, yeah. it's like real people don't. Oh, okay, maybe they do, but I, I'm more interested in the person that stays true to their quirky interests, even though they have a set of views and characteristics that are outside of everybody else in that group. The rodeo clown that's a liberal. Mm-hmm. It, that, that's interesting. Yeah, it, there's built-in conflict there. Yeah. Um, which is drama, which is the soul of storytelling. The black person that has different views, uh, the woman who's a uh, tomboy but feminine. Mm-hmm. The Like that physicist we were talking about. Like the physicist. The Japanese person that's obsessed with Celtic culture. Mm-hmm. Like you. Like me. <laughs> I would hope that would be interesting. That would be interesting to me. It's like, oh, there's representation right there. Interesting characters are going to be outsiders. So why write them like a stereotype? Mm-hmm. And the other thing, the other thought you occasioned as you were on your rant is that if you follow this logic... No man would ever be allowed to write a woman as a main character. Mm. Oh, God, yeah. And so you would never get Ellen Ripley or Sarah Connor Mm. or Princess Leia or any of these amazing female heroes that have populated pop culture for the last 50, 75 years. Mm. It wouldn't happen. So... Of course you should be writing across these lines. And the way I tend to look at the world, the more people tell you you shouldn't do it, that probably means that that's exactly what people are hungry for because they're being starved of it. Yes. That's a commercial opportunity right there and an artistic opportunity, which to me, unfortunately for my bank account, is more important, is that it's an artistic opportunity. But um, yeah, so gird your loins, be courageous, and write what you want to write. Yes. Write what interests you. Don't write what you know. What you know is boring. Write what you're interested in, because that forces you to grow, and that'll force you to grow as an artist and as a person. And that's one of the great side benefits of being a writer, is that you get to push your own boundaries, and you get to mature and grow in ways that a lot of people don't get the opportunity to. So don't throw that away. Especially not for the sake of conformity. Yeah. The people who aren't going to read you writing a black character because you're a middle-aged white woman are probably not going to read you anyway because you're a middle-aged white woman. Uh, That's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about that. There are people in the world who think with their ideologies. These are, I mean, it happens all across the world, but it's really prevalent in uh, European cultures, especially ones that have been heavily influenced by German Romanticism, which America and England have been um, since the late 19th century. And when you think with your ideology, you're not thinking about reality. You're thinking about an idealized model of reality. And if you take it too seriously, you stop caring about reality, and when it doesn't fit your model, reality must be wrong. That is the antithesis of everything that makes the modern world work. And that's exactly the kind of thinking that led to the gulags, that led to the Nazi concentration camps, that led to the Great Leap Forward, that led to all the atrocities that made the 20th century such a f***ing nightmare. So don't do it. Write what your muse directs you to. 
And if you get flack for it, then you've got something to be proud of because you're being shit on by people who don't have the courage of their convictions. And that's the right sort of person to have as your enemy. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much for sending it in, Rose. And I'm sorry I got a little exercised and snippy. It wasn't directed at you. I really hope that this discussion has helped you figure out what sorts of lines you're willing to cross and which ones you want to color within. And I wish you all the success in the world at writing your books. And I hope we hear from you again. Thank you very much, and we'll see you tomorrow. The Everyday Novelist is written by J. Daniel Sawyer and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty McKeon and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2021 J. Daniel Sawyer and the production is copyright 2021 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License and all other rights are reserved to their respective owners. Join the conversation. Submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat. Or find me at jdsawyeronminds.com or hit me at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you.